Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast covering your favorite crew featuring Peter and David Goh. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. I'm here by myself again this week, David Goh, uh, one of the hosts here on the podcast. And then Peter, he probably will be back next week. So uh, if you only want to listen to the ones with Peter, I guess uh, just skip this one and go ahead to the next one. Um, but you are stuck with me for today. Um, so we'll be covering a little bit of Brewers news, a little bit of a slower week. But we've got some interesting things to look back on. Uh, so don't worry about us not having content to talk about. Um, I think today is actually a pretty interesting episode. Um, we are going to uh, go over just a few pieces of news items, nothing major. Um, and then the bigger news, I would say, was that the return on the Corey Knable trade was announced. Leo Crawford, a left-handed pitcher from the Dodgers. Um, and then also look back on uh, an anniversary that uh, we saw uh, earlier this week. So uh, those will be some of the items that we'll be covering in today's episode. And without further ado, let's just go ahead and get started, get some of the pieces of news out of the way. Um, first of all, it seems like the Brewers are headed to arbitration with both Brandon Woodruff and Josh Hader. It's unlikely that they'll settle at this point. I would say just be prepared for that. I don't think that that's anything very surprising or major. They did go to arbitration last year with Hader. For Woodruff, this is his first year of arbitration eligibility. Uh, but it seems likely since they're both better players, they haven't reached an agreement and uh seems like that would be the route that they would take them, especially with the Brewers being more of penny pinchers, especially I would say under the Stearns regime, and especially this year coming off some big revenue losses last year. Uh, the Brewers were affected a little bit disproportionately, I would say, from not having fans. The Brewers are very dependent on the gate revenue uh, for their overall revenue, not as dependent on the TV contract, unlike some teams like the Yankees or Dodgers. Uh, those teams may earn more and, and do earn more in the gate revenue, but proportionally it's a little bit less because they have contracts for spanning about 10 years, over a billion dollars in TV contracts. Uh, the Brewers, of course, not getting nearly that sum from Fox Sports Wisconsin to broadcast their games. Uh, and generally, the smaller markets are more dependent on the gate revenue. So that's also something that we saw in the arbitration non-tender deadline, uh, which happened uh, about a week and a half ago, there were a disproportionate amount of NL and AL Central teams that non-tendered players that simply didn't offer them contracts because they had to cut revenues and cut they had to cut payroll um, in light of the loss of revenue a little bit more so than the teams on the East Coast or the West Coast that are a little bit bigger markets like the Dodgers, Yankees, even uh, Mets or Giants uh, for that matter. So uh, that's a, a trend that we've seen, um, and also of course. The Brewers are one of the smallest markets. I think they are the smallest market by population, and they have the second smallest TV market. Um, Cleveland is another small market, a central team. Kansas City, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, all very small markets compared to some of the big giants, even some of the other, other franchises like Philadelphia or San Diego have a little bit of a bigger market to draw from. So that could be also partly why the Brewers are going to arbitration seems like uh, with Woodruff and Hayter. Um, overall though, not much happened at the winter meetings. They had virtual winter meetings. I'm really not sure what that looked like. Of course, normally it takes place uh, over a about a five day span at a hotel um, where kind of the whole baseball world is gathered together, but we weren't able to have that 
for obvious reasons. So uh, whatever a virtual winter meetings looks like um, is what took place. I heard rumors that the Rule 5 draft actually took place over a Slack chat, um, the app that businesses use to communicate with each other. I have no clue if that's actually true, uh, but I really hope that is. It's kind of funny if that's actually the case. Um, just texting who their picks are for the Rule 5 draft and kind of reflective of uh, what our modern society is right now. Uh, but going to that Rule 5 draft, the Brewers did not select any players. Yeah, and actually the last time I think that the Brewers took anyone in the Major League portion of the Rule 5 draft was back in 2016 when they selected both Colin Walsh and Zach Jones. Uh, Walsh being from Oakland and Jones from Minnesota. Uh, neither of them stuck, of course, with the ball club. Walsh, I think, played in about 40 games with the crew that year. Uh, he slashed, I think it was 063, 317, 085. So, of course, not a great mark, uh, but the insanely high walk rate was there. I think it was about 29%. Uh, that was really all that he all that he did at the major league level uh, before he was designated for assignment and ultimately returned. And he's a free agent right now. He played a little bit in independent ball, uh, but I'm not exactly sure if he plans to continue playing. Zach Jones actually was rehabbing from an injury and then never even really got to the major league level. He also ended up going to independent ball for a little bit with the St. Saint Paul Saints in 2018. Pitched a little bit in the Mets organization in 2019. That was the last that we heard of Jones. So, of course, we didn't see Jones at the major league level, uh, but those were the last two selections in the Rule 5 draft. There is a minor league portion of the draft as well, uh, but the Brewers weren't, didn't select any players from that portion, didn't lose any players from that portion either. So, overall, a quiet day in the Rule 5 draft, and that took place on Thursday, which officially marked the end of the winter meetings. But overall, the big news piece during the winter meetings was Leo Crawford, um, who was named as the return on the Corey Knable trade. He was uh, the player to be named later. The reason why he had to be, uh, it, we had to wait until he was announced was because he was actually Rule 5 draft eligible. So of course, yes, the Brewers could have selected him in the Rule 5 draft, um, but by doing so, they would have required them to keep him on the Major League roster for the whole year. And that's something that the Brewers, nor any other team apparently, uh, was willing to do. And the, the Dodgers actually had a couple other guys selected, so it's possible that maybe Crawford was only the third or fourth guy down on the list of uh, the Brewers' potential targets in the player to be named later. But Crawford did end up being the player that the Brewers are receiving. Crawford is a 23-year-old left-hander, a little bit of a, a smaller frame for a pitcher, about 6 feet, 190 pounds. Um, and he is actually originally from Nicaragua, was signed as an uh, international amateur free agent in 2014. He finished 2019 in AA Tulsa uh, in the Dodgers organization. One appearance in AAA, actually, uh, but he... I think walked two batters and allowed a home run before getting an out. Good for a 60 FIP, which I actually have never seen a FIP that high. Uh, fielding independent pitching, of course. But he overall has posted good numbers throughout the minor leagues, uh, especially later on. Uh, in 2018, he posted a 2.77 ERA um, in high A in a very hitters-friendly league, 68 innings. Uh, and his strikeout numbers were decent and posted really low home run rates. 2019 uh, repeated a little bit at the high A level, and he was exceptional. Struck out over 10 batters per nine, which is well above average for a starting pitcher. A very low walk rate, pretty good home run rate, good for a 2.96 ERA. And then uh, in double A 
that year through 30 innings with a 2.37 ERA. Strikeout rate was a little bit down, uh, but he still did fare very well. Uh, so Crawford, I think, is a, a little bit better than I would have thought that they would have gotten in the return for Knable. Crawford also could make an impact at the major league level, uh, but he isn't on the 40-man roster, so they don't necessarily need to have him there. And he comes with all three option years, so he is some added depth there. Um, Crawford has a little bit of an unconventional delivery, which I think can work to his advantage. It seems pretty repeatable still, especially out of the windup, a little bit unconventional. But he has got a very good changeup. Uh, watching video of his changeup, uh, he was getting lots of swings and misses, especially against righties, which is a big thing for lefties, because if lefties are able to have a third pitch, whether it be a changeup or a splitter, or even a very good sinker, that helps uh, a lot against opposite-handed hitters. Um, which, of course, would be a right-handed hitter against a left-handed pitcher, which Crawford is. He doesn't throw very hard, only sits in the 91 to 92 miles an hour range, but he able has it been able to be effective still despite his lower velocity for um, the modern game. He's got a breaking ball. Some call it a curveball, some slider, some even a slurve, uh, but it's kind of his third pitch. He's got a pretty good command with his fastball, uh, got some pretty good movement, and his changeup is very good. Um, but his, his breaking ball is only okay, and it seems like that could be a big X factor. But he really started pitching well when he was able to command that changeup really well in high A and double A in 2019. That's what Stearns and Council alluded to. So it seems like if he can get that breaking ball up where he can have a real good three-pitch mix uh, from the left side, could see him be kind of a maybe a Brent Suter type pitcher, good command, uh, a little bit of an unconventional left. He doesn't throw very hard, but... And maybe even even the unheralded aspect not being really on any prospect radars, I think that that could work to Crawford's advantage. And he he's a guy who um, who has maybe kind of slipped through the cracks. So I'm actually very excited about the return that they got on Knable in Leo Crawford. Uh, it seems like they did better, I would say, than I would have expected, given the fact that the Brewers were going to non-tender Knable, probably not really get anything for him. And with just minutes left until the non-tender deadline, they were able to swing this trade where they got, it seems like, a, a real asset back for Knable. Just this weekend, also, uh, Fangraphs actually posted uh, an article detailing their Zips projections for the Brewers. Um, Zips is one of their projection systems that they use to um, predict and analyze how players will fare in the upcoming season. Overall, I'd say kind of mixed results. Um, they've got some better and some worse. And usually these projections are going to be a little bit conservative, so uh, they're like especially like the superstars don't usually project that high unless you're Mike Trout or Mookie Betts pretty much even Yelich they have projected for just 4.3 wins above replacement I would also tend to say that these projections probably won't be as accurate this upcoming year since we don't know how real the numbers were in 2020 we did see most of the good players still perform like good players of course Yelich was frankly not that good but we also don't know how that could affect him long-term. It could affect others long-term. But if you look at their offense, uh, it's they, they don't have, I would say, a very optimistic outlook. The only players that they have slotted to be above average hitters on the ball club are Yelich, Vogelbach, and Hira, uh, which, of course, you kind of need more than just three above average hitters if you're going to be a, a successful playoff contender, even in a weak division, which it seems like the NL Central is shaping up to be. They have actually 
fairly good projections on Luis Urias. 2.1 wins above replacement. Seems like the projection system likes his defense a lot. They have him slotted to hit 246 with a 333 on base and a 386 slugging, which is about 10% below average. Keston Hira also hitting 246 in the projections with a 460 slugging. Uh, but overall, just kind of a lot of middling, mediocre bats, I would say, is seemingly what the projections uh, slot a lot of the hitters for. The pitching projections, of course, are a little bit more optimistic. Uh, they have Woodruff slotted for a 3.71 ERA, uh, Burns for a 3.73. Um, their inning totals are a little bit lower than you might expect because they anticipate some injuries happening, but they still do um, have Woodruff and Burns having solid years. Overall, I would say it'd be a little bit of a disappointment if they both have ERAs around 3.7 and they do get hurt, which it seems like that's kind of what the projection is for. But uh, but Woodruff hasn't pitched a full season yet as a starter, and neither has Burns at the major league level. So that's, of course, still a wild card uh, going forward. And we don't really know what the rotation is going to shape up exactly like. Um, if they enter the season now, it seems like it'd be some combination of uh, Woodruff, Burns, Hauser, Lynn Bloom, and Lauer. I would overall be okay with that, but I'd really prefer if they added another arm and then have a little bit more depth. It's possible Hauser or Lauer doesn't start in the rotation then, and I think it'd be smart to have at least six viable Major League starters if you are going to consider Lauer to be viable, which I think he could be at least an average starter. I mean, he was in 2019. Of course, this year didn't go as planned. Uh, but anyways, just a kind of a brief overview. It seems like they have the Brewers as being slightly below average of a, a ball club, maybe around average. The Brewers do have um, pretty good depth, but they don't have a lot else, I would say, beyond that. They have some high-impact talent, but they're kind of lacking that in the offense. I would say they have a lot of slightly below average players, which is fine. But when you have a lot of those guys starting, um, it's probably not going to bode very well for their playoff chances. Uh, so, of course, we'll see how the roster shakes up. doesn't seem like the Brewers are going to have an extremely busy offseason, off but they could. Of course, we never really know under Stearns. And then moving towards our last segment of today, um, Saturday actually marked the 40th anniversary of probably one of the top two biggest trades in Brewers history, dubbed the trade that made Milwaukee famous by Sports Illustrated. Um, before the 1981 season, they put Raleigh Fingers on the cover, and that was one of the main stories in the magazine, um, detailing this trade that the Brewers had swung with Whitey Herzog's Cardinals, which of course the Brewers ended up facing in the World Series just a year later. I would say that um, either this is the biggest trade, if not maybe the CC Sabathia trade in 2008, but this one featured a higher volume of players. I mean, it featured two, Hall of, two future Hall of Famers, two future Cy Young Award winners. It was a seven-player trade with a lot of big names trading places, um, including Raleigh Fingers, who actually never appeared in a game with the Cardinals. Um, so we're just going to go back and kind of back in time and look at the trade, especially since Brewer fans love to relive the, the glory days of the early 80s, primarily that 1982 season uh, where they lost in Game 7 of the World Series. But of course, I would say there would be some added meaning here because the two teams that swung the trade were the two World Series participants just a year later. And you don't really often have a trade between two play two teams that square off in the World Series soon after, because usually, especially now, they're kind of either either in rebuilding mode or they um, are looking more towards the long the, the long run, the future. 
Um, and so to have two kind of win now teams swing a big trade was a little bit of a surprise even in that day, uh, but would even be more so now. Uh, so let's just look back. Uh, probably many of you know that the return for the Brewers was um, Pete Vukovic, Raleigh Fingers, and Ted Simmons. Vukovic ended up winning the, the Cy Young Award in 1982. Uh, some people actually consider that maybe the worst Cy Young Award winning season of all time, but nonetheless, he did win the Cy Young. It was kind of uh, a default in he was the best pitcher on the best team in the American League, um, and so he kind, of, he kind of won because of that. And I, I don't necessarily agree looking back that he won it, but the fact of the matter is he did. And so uh, he was, he, he did win the Cy Young and uh, he had a, a pretty good year in 82. He had a 3.34 ERA in 223 innings, made 30 starts. And that was on the heels of a pretty solid season in 81 also. Uh, 83 was not a very good year for him, missed all of 84. Um, he pitched through a torn rotator cuff actually down the stretch in 82. Um, fingers, of course, got hurt also and wasn't able to pitch. Um, but what Vukovic did was amazing um, down the stretch there, especially with the shoulder injury. He broke down a little bit at the end and didn't finish the greatest, but it's very understandable considering that he had suffered maybe the most, uh, the most difficult uh, arm injury that you can for a pitcher. Uh, so Vukovic became a, a very integral member of the 82 Brewers team. Um, and he was one of the guys in the trade. Riley Fingers was another one, of course, now in the Hall of Fame is number 34, is retired by the Brewers. Um, personally, I don't think that that's necessarily justified. I don't think that he was worthy of getting his number retired. But also they did retire it before either Yount or Molitor retired. So I think that that has something to do with it. They retired it in 92 when uh, Fingers was elected to the Hall of Fame. So I think there was a little bit maybe of anticipation or rush to try to get his number retired. Um, because at that point, the only brewer who had um, been elected to the Hall of Fame was Hank Aaron, who had played sporadically. I think Don Sutton got elected around that time also, but Sutton pitched even fewer years with the Brewers. Uh, so Fingers seemed like a little bit more of an obvious case. Uh, but Fingers in 81 was outstanding. Uh, that was a shortened season because of the strike, uh, but he threw 78 innings, uh, 47 games. I think they played only about 105 games that year. Um, Fingers had a 1.404 ERA, 2.6 wins above replacement, and 28 saves. Uh, Fingers, of course, won that Cy Young, but he also won the MVP that year, um, which is extremely rare for a relief pitcher. I think he's one of only about five relief pitchers ever to win MVP. I don't think that we'll see that happening anytime soon. Um, to kind of put it in perspective, I'd say that his 81 season was kind of similar to what Devin Williams did this year, um, but in a little bit more of a sample size, 78 innings compared to the 30 or so innings that Williams pitched this year. Fingers, though, had really that year was great, and his 82 season was also outstanding until he got hurt at the end of the year um, and was unable to pitch in the playoffs. Um, many Brewer fans, Bud Selig included, kind of hold to the belief that the Brewers would have won the World Series if they had Fingers. And it seems like that would be the case, especially blowing the lead in Game 7. Uh, not necessarily that Fingers would have pitched um, the whole game or like the whole second half of the game after the starter came out. Um, but that would have also changed the pitching alignment, so they would have been able to have better arms going earlier in the game. Uh, and I think that would have made an impact even earlier in the series. Um, I was not around for the series, unfortunately, but I've watched games from it. I've read a lot about it, um, and it seems like that is probably a viable, um, a viable opinion to have. 
And then the third member that the Brewers uh, received of that trade who was on the 82 team was Ted Simmons. Uh, Simmons had a pretty bad year actually in 81, um, and he was a little bit skeptical on the trade uh, because he had been in St. Louis for so long. Uh, but Daryl Porter actually was with the Cardinals at the time, a former Brewer um, who had a very good career and of course ended up being the 82 World Series MVP. Kind of just adds to the layer of um, of how intertwined these, these ball clubs were uh, going into that series. Uh, but because of that, Whitey Herzog wanted to move Ted Simmons off the catching position and to first base. Simmons was a little bit older at that point already. Um, Simmons was about 31, which is, I'd say, older for a catcher. And he came up actually in 1968 at the age of 19. Um, so he had already been an everyday catcher for about 10 years at that point, uh, kind of alluding to the fact that uh, that Simmons was maybe past his prime. And so Herzog wanted to move him to first base. The only problem was that they had Keith Hernandez at first, who is considered one of the greatest defensive first basemen of all time. I think that Hernandez should be in the Hall of Fame alongside Simmons now, who was elected by the Veterans Committee last year. Um, but Herzog wanted to move Keith Hernandez to left field. Ted Simmons said, oh, well, that, that doesn't make sense. Why are we going to have a catcher play first base and a first baseman play left field? Uh, so Simmons said, I, I want to keep catching too. And that doesn't make sense for your team you should trade me because they had just signed Daryl Porter. Uh, so Herzog ended up swinging this trade with Milwaukee, uh, but they ended up kind of being on hold because if a player has played 10 years with one club, including five consecutive uh, with that club, he can veto any trade. So Simmons had these rights since he had been with the Cardinals for 12 years at that point. And it was kind of up in the balance. It was, well, is Simmons going to accept the trade or not? And um, he, of course, ended up accepting the trade, went to Milwaukee. He overall was very satisfied with that. And that, those were kind of the missing pieces to that team. Of course, their infield was outstanding. They had Cooper, Gantner, Yount, and Molitor at third. Um, Don Money DH'd some. Um, and they had a very good outfield to Oglavy and Gorman Thomas, uh, which then the, the big hole was the catching and the pitching. Uh, the Brewers were able to kind of piece it together, especially with this trade. And that uh, really solidified their role as championship contenders. But of course, getting a few good players back, uh, they did have to give up some. They traded Larry Sorensen, who in just 1978, two years prior to that, had a 3-2-1 ERA in uh, 280 innings, winning 18 games, uh, just striking out 2.5 batters per nine, actually, which is uh, extremely low. That's unheard of for nowadays. But, uh, but he had a very good year, um, and he had been solid for the previous two years also. Uh, so they were giving up a pretty good starter who was a little bit younger, actually. To get back these players, they traded Sixto Lascano also, who was a very good young talent. He had come up in 74, around the time Yount did. And his 1979 season was one of the best seasons in franchise history up to that point. Can't imagine that that would have been an easy player to part with for Harry Dalton. And then they parted also with uh, two young guys who were either on the cusp of the big leagues or just debuted, Dave LaPointe and David Green. Uh, you may know them because they both played in the 82 series, uh, whereas Lascano did not and neither did Sorensen. Uh, but LaPointe was a left-handed pitcher, pretty young and pretty heralded as a, a prospect, of course. They didn't have prospect rankings like they do today. Um, but LaPointe ended up having a pretty solid career. He ended up pitching um, parts of 12 seasons a 4.02 ERA, and in 82, he threw 152 innings, uh, kind of a swing guy between the rotation and the bullpen, 3.42 ERA, um, and worth almost two wins above replacement now looking back, nine wins also. 
uh, nine and three record. But David Green was also an outfielder, and he was the Brewers' top prospect considered uh, widely by the industry outfielder. People thought that he was going to be really be a superstar. Uh, but the Brewers ended up trading him, and he didn't end up living to his potential. Ended up playing just uh, six years. Um, hit 283 actually, in 1982. Not much power, um, but was still a role player on the 82 team. Pretty solid season in 83, and then kind of trended downwards after that, and was never the same. Retired after the 87 season, after playing in just 14 games with the Cardinals. Didn't end up having the career that was anticipated, and that's kind of the risk you run with trading for prospects. They're never guaranteed versus you get a veteran like Fingers or Simmons or Vukovic and you know a little bit more of what you're going to be getting. But that ended up kind of setting the table for the Brewers uh, American League Championship season in 82 that um, Milwaukee uh, fans kind of glorify even to this day. Hopefully we don't have to glorify it anymore after a World Series championship. Hopefully in a couple years, that's very difficult at this point. Uh, but it would be kind of nice. They're still celebrating like 35th anniversary, 40th anniversary, which I think is kind of an overkill at this point. Uh, it's not even like they won the World Series, um, but the best, for, I would say the best team in, in franchise history um, up to this point. And then uh, our last segment of today is the random player of the day. Gorman Thomas actually celebrated his birthday also on Saturday. Um, so we are going to be talking about Gorman Thomas, 70 years old now, and he was the Brewers uh, franchise's first first round pick in 69 back when they were still the Pilots. Gorman Thomas said that he had never heard of the Seattle Pilots. He lived in South Carolina, went to Charleston Southern University uh, for a year, and he got a call saying that he had been drafted, and this was dur during the Vietnam War. So he's figuring, well, if I got drafted, that means I'm going to the military. Uh, so he tells his mom that he got drafted, and then um, his mom says, oh, where? And he's like, well, it's something like the Seattle Pilots, so I guess I'm going to become a, a pilot and uh, go into the, the Air Force. Um, of course, that didn't end up happening, and he was drafted by the Seattle Pilots of the American League, ended up becoming the Brewers just a year later, but ended up having a solid career with the Brewers in 11 years with the team, hit 230, 325 on base, and a 461 slugging. Uh, was really the big power bat of the good teams in the late 70s, early 80s for the Brewers. He led the league with 45 home runs in 79 and then 39 home runs in 82. Uh, one interesting thing, actually, he finished 7th in the MVP voting in 79, and that was while leading the league in strikeouts. So uh, at the time, a lot, of, a lot of baseball peers said that strikeouts were bad, and I still think that they're bad. But now, of course, they're kind of just viewed as part of being a hitter. Uh, less so at that point, um, but writers overlooked that some. He did finish seventh in the MVP voting despite leading the American League in strikeouts with 175, um, but had a few solid, solid seasons, slugged over 500 a couple of times, and even though he had low batting averages, it was okay on a team that had um, Yount, Molitor, Cooper, who all hit for very high averages. He was the run producer behind all those guys, cleanup hitter, five hitter, and ended up being a very integral part of the lineups in some of the Brewers' greatest lineups really in franchise history. So he's today's random player of the day, um, Gorman Thomas, who celebrated his birthday on Saturday, turning 70. Um, but that's all I've got for today. Um, today, a little bit of a slower news week, uh, even with the winter meetings taking place. Uh, but the Brewers did acquire Leo Crawford in return for Corey Knable that was announced this week. And then nothing really else happening at the winter meetings. No player transactions as far as the Rule 5 draft goes for the Brewers. Um, future arbitration cases seem like they're coming up with Woodruff and Hayter. Um, and then 
Uh, just recapping the, the 40th anniversary of the huge trade that the Brewers and Cardinals made um, now 40 years ago uh, in 1980. Uh, so thanks for joining us today on the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd really like it if you'd uh, rate or review our podcast. Also, check out our blog, bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com. Um, the most recent article up there was uh, published and written by me a couple weeks ago about Adrian Hauser going into the year, uh, what we can expect from him. So be sure to check that out. We got some other stuff on there, uh, even though it may, may have been published a little bit earlier. Uh, still some That still applies, even though, um, of course, like season previews are a little bit different. But still, we have some articles on there that I'd recommend that you go check out. Um, and then be sure to follow us at Brewers Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we're a little bit more active on Twitter. Um, but thanks for supporting us. Thanks for listening. And go Brewers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We'd appreciate if you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. Make sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Brewers Podcast.